focus on not how much they spend on tax, but what they do with the rest of their money. So the tax rate's 25 or 26, that doesn't really matter as what you do with the other 74 or other 75% of the profit, that really matters. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to Update 27 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What is changing today? Or if you're listening to this later, what changed on the 1st of July 2021? Nathan Watt of Watson and Watt in Brisbane and I will go through 11 changes with you and then also discuss three things that haven't changed yet. Number one. STP compulsory for everybody. So we had a phase-in of STP. Most people are already on STP, but there was an extension for small and closely held businesses. So small is 19 or fewer staff and closely held businesses was companies where the directors and employees were kind of all one family. Those businesses still had an exemption and so didn't have to use STP. They could use it, but they didn't have to. And this is now changing from the year 1st of July. STP is compulsory for everybody. So there are no further extensions. Does that affect a lot of your clients? No. Um, everybody who's uh, on STP, like we just put everyone on STP, regardless of how big or small they are. Um, I just think it's an easy way to report to the ATO for one, and it's terribly inefficient to have, you know, paper payment summaries or the old system for a couple of clients and not for everybody else. So I just put everybody onto STP that you had payroll. And of course, you can always do an unscheduled pay run. If there's not enough money in the bank, you might just have a very low scheduled pay run every month. And then you just do unscheduled pay runs when there's more money in the bank. Yeah. I mean, my advice is always to try and pay people for the job they're doing. So even directors or shareholders, if they're working in the business, to pay them a salary for that work. And then if there is profits left over, pay them a dividend for that or as a, or a bonus, you know, once a quarter or once a year um, if you need to. But I think I think it's a good move trying to corporatize small businesses. The more you give them exemptions to get around things, the more they'll use it. So if you actually get people to pay themselves a salary and pay their taxes as they go, there's less likelihood that they're going to have a tax debt at the end of the year. So I I prefer to just get people into the payroll, pay them a proper salary and pay your taxes along the way. Then it's nice and neat and tidy for everybody. I agree. It's much nicer and neater and tidier. I have to admit that I still have a few clients without STP where basically during the year they just take cash as they need it and it goes against shareholder loan. And then at the end of the year we... We see how much of that needs to go to the wage to avoid a Division 7A problem. But of course, that is now coming to an end. So from now on, we will need to do it the tidy and orderly way, the way you already do it. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I mean, it just, you got to get people on the front foot. So, you know, you know, they're going to take a certain amount every week just to live on or every month, just to, to live on their personal life. So just declare that as a wage. And, you know, if you get to, December or March and it looks like they're not making as much profit, then, you know, change that wage down for the rest of the year. Um, but it helps people look at their numbers and see what they're doing to see if this is um, the business is 
you know, producing money, producing a profit that they can take out. Otherwise, they're basically just funding it. They're loaning the business money and then paying themselves wages on the way out. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. I also think it will make less work for us because if there is just a monthly wage payment and from now on all withdrawals are from the private account, there will be a lot less transactions coming through the accounting software. Whereas at the moment, still without STP, those clients tend to take $50 here, $100 there, $1,000 there, and hence you have a lot more transactions that are really a wage payment. So it, it will clean up the books. Yeah, and it, it also allows people to separate what's business and what's personal. So um, if you're taking $50 here and $100 there, you're not really sure of how much money you're spending in your personal life because you know, it's coming out of the business bank account. Whereas if you pay yourself a set amount every month, and all your personal stuff comes out of that and you run out of money each month, then obviously you're spending more than you're earning. So, um, yeah, you've got a good idea of whether or not, you know, you're living beyond your means, whereas if you mix it all together, it's kind of this murkiness of, well, is the business performing or are we just spending too much in our personal life? So I like to keep them as, as you know, separate as possible. Very good point. And then just as an add-on for employers with closely held employees, so the employees are all part of the same family. For those employers, there are actually three ways to report STP. So for everybody else, you just have to report STP every time you pay. But for employers with closely held employees, there are three ways. One is just reporting actual payments in real time, just like everybody else does. But then you can also report actual payments quarterly. So you don't have to report STP every time you pay, but you just do it quarterly. Or you report a reasonable estimate quarterly and then you reconcile it at the end of the year. I can imagine you don't like option two and three. I think you prefer doing it all via option one, correct? Absolutely. I mean, if you... If you just do it monthly, just do a monthly pay run and just say, okay, my wage is five thousand dollars for a month or whatever it is, and just just get it done. Like you're just making more work for yourself and for the client by doing a quarterly or a reasonable estimate. Like just you know, you got to put yes. some structure around your business and just go, okay, what would a normal employer-employee relationship look like? And just do it that way. And you know, it's nice and clean and simple. Otherwise, you've got all these other reconciliations and. Doing it quarterly, there's a good chance it's going to get missed. And I know that, you know, for micro businesses, they don't want to spend the money on things. But come on, you're in business. You've got to spend some money. You've got to do it properly. Just get your processes sorted out. Yes. And I can imagine option two and three will take a lot more time for the accountant or bookkeeper. Hence, should cost more money in accounting or bookkeeping fees. Hence, you actually save time doing it in real time. Yeah, I mean, I think we just need to stop these carve-outs and just have, you know, if you're going to pay yourself a wage, it needs to be done monthly because, you know, who in their right mind as an employee would get paid quarterly um, from an external party? Like Nobody would work for three months before they get paid. So why do you do it in your own business? Oh, just because they let us do it. Like, it's just, it's a cop-out. Like, just do it properly. Yes, I agree. I 100% agree with what you're saying. There's just one caveat and I think that is new business. When you have just started a business and you don't really know, you don't have a steady cash flow yet. It's very up and down. You don't really know whether you have a market yet. That is the only caveat I would put forward. But for an established business that has a reasonably steady cash flow, although which business has that at the moment, but an, an established business should aim to use option one. I agree with you. Even with the startup, though, they've most likely lent that business money. So any money they do take out would be a loan repayment to start with. 
And then if you're monitoring your accounts, you can say, okay, we're getting close to repaying that loan in full. Should this now be a wage? Because obviously that cash has got to come from somewhere. So hopefully it's generating a profit. So, you know, if you're keeping an eye on your numbers, then you would see that that is no longer a loan repayment. It's now got to be a wage to come out. Number two, change in company tax rates. Number two, changing company tax rates, that is very straightforward. It just decreases from 26% to 25%, and that's basically it. There are no further reductions in company tax rates in the pipeline. So we've basically come to the end of the journey now, you know, the long winding road from slowly coming down from 30% to 25%. We had changing tax rates every year that did everybody's head in. So now we're basically arriving at the 25%, which is much easier to calculate in examples, etc. than 275 or 26%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. It's come down uh, to 25 it's been a long time coming. I think there's going to be some older businesses with some trapped franking credits there, but you know it is what it is. I think 25 is a, a reasonable number. It'd be good to get it a bit lower, but I think at this stage of the economy, we need to keep it around about that number. Yeah, that's a very good point. If you have franking credits from the time that you still paid 30%, those franking credits never really now come out, correct? Correct. Unless you've got, um, you know, if you had the cash flow boost, then there's an opportunity there to get those franking credits out with that that non-exempt income because you're not paying income tax on that cash flow boost, but you've already paid income in the past. So from a retained earnings perspective, you could marry the two up and it could still come out, but that would be in a limited circumstances. Yeah, but that's a very good point. That's a very good point. The cash flow boost is a great opportunity to get trapped franking credits out of the company. Yeah. Here's some more about the change in company tax rates, which Nathan and I discussed later. Company tax is temporary tax. The, the, real, the real taxation happens at the individual level. So whether it's 26% or 23 or 20% doesn't really change how much tax you pay in the end. No, again, it's just a timing difference. So if you take the money out, out of the company, you've got to pay the tax. So I think, yeah, whether it's 26 or 25 doesn't really affect small business too much if they're taking the money out. I mean, if they're reinvesting it, then it's great. They can reinvest and expand faster than they could otherwise. But, you know, if you set up through a trust, you, you get nothing. <laughs> so another reason not to put a business in a trust as far as I'm concerned. But it just means that the um, that the top up will be higher. So the surprise when money is taken out of the business businesses will be will be higher. You know, there will be more discussions about, but I already paid tax on that money. Why do I have to pay tax again? Yeah, but there should be more cash in the business because it paid less tax at the company level. So the, the cash dividend should be higher to compensate for the tax they'll pay in their personal name. I was trying to explain, you know, you're going to pay your marginal tax rate. It's just that the company is going to pay 25% of it and you're going to pay the rest of it. That's, yeah. Yes, that's a good way to explain it. Number three, removal of simplified method of working from home. So number three, removal of the simplified method of working from home. From the 1st of March 2020 until the 30th of June 2021, you could use a simplified method and just charge 80 cents per hour for every hour you worked from home, that is coming to an end. So now it, it goes back to either actual cost that you apply proportionally or the normal rate is 52 cents. The fixed rate is 52 cents per hour. 
But either way, it's actually reasonably low. I had clients working three, four months from home every day, eight hours, and it wasn't actually that much when you apply the 80 cents. You get a lot more. Yeah, there's a lot of clients where they'd, they'd always worked from home for a few days a week um, throughout the year anyway, and then they had the, the full time for the three months, and they were better off just claiming the fixed rate method for the full year because they had other things they wanted to claim as well. So it was you know a bit of a, a bit of a calculation to go through to see which one ended up best and you know, for a few hundred dollars a lot of the time, it didn't make any sense. What is the fixed rate method? Do you mean the 52 cents per hour method? Or what do you mean with fixed rate? Or do you mean actual cost? No, the fixed rate method. So you could claim the number of hours that you work from home on the fixed rate method, but then you could also claim the other costs of the internet and all that sort of stuff in addition to that fixed rate method. So the fixed rate was just heating, cooling, depreciation um, for the time that you worked at home. You know, you've got to have the diary evidence and all that sort of stuff as well, but you could also claim your internet proportionately and um, those sorts of things. Yes, of course. The 80 cents covers everything, internet, phone, everything, whereas the uh, fixed rate, you can still claim your internet and phone proportionately in addition. Yeah, yeah. well, some of the internet and things like that, but it's also you know, record-keeping. You go, go through the process of working out what your business use is, which is pretty difficult these days with uh, unlimited internet packages. Are you spending any more money on internet if it's all tied up in one package? Probably not. Very great area. I don't think anybody really has found a reliable... I prefer they just keep the simplified method. Now, they might change the cents per hour, but you know, if they just kept that and say, okay, this is one one way to calculate everything, just like the, the um, cents per kilometre for your car, um, it's nice and simple and away you go, rather than this, the fixed rate method is a bit of a hybrid between, oh, you can claim cents per hour on this stuff, but you still need to claim actual costs on the other stuff. It's, yeah, a bit complicated. Yeah, I agree. For the ATO, it actually would have been better if the simplified method stayed. Because then also in an audit, when it's difficult to prove that internet usage was exclusively for business or whatever whatever is being claimed, then as an alternative, the ATO can just apply the 80 cents. So it would have been better for the ATO if it stayed. Yeah, agreed. So you have three options to claim working from home expenses. The first option is the simplified method. The simplified method covers everything for 80 cents per hour. The good thing about this method is that, A, you don't need a dedicated workspace. You can work anywhere at the kitchen table or on your bed. And B, you don't need any receipts. Just working from home is enough. The second option is the fixed rate method. Under the fixed rate method, you claim 52 cents per hour for your workspace, and then you claim a proportionate amount for your internet, phone, stationary computer in addition to this. The good thing about this method is that it might give you a higher deduction than the simplified method, but whether it does or not, of course, depends on the amount of your expenses. The not so good thing about this method is A, you must have a dedicated workspace, so just the kitchen table is not enough and B, you need receipts for everything you charge in addition to the 52 cents per hour. And the third method is the actual cost method. The good thing about it is that it might give you the highest deduction of all depending on your actual cost and the proportionate size of your workspace. The not so good thing about it is that A, as before, you need a dedicated workspace and B, you need receipts for everything. 
And for all three methods, you need a diary evidence to prove the hours you worked from home. So a timesheet, roster, diary, or just a list where you write down the hours you worked from home. So that shouldn't be so difficult. One tricky question is always rent or mortgage interest, because it is a big ticket item. If you rent your place, can you claim a part of your rent as work-related expenses or business expenses? Or if you own your home, can you claim part of your mortgage interest, council fees and house insurance? And the answer for employees is no. If you're working from home as an employee and so you have work-related expenses, you can't claim rent. And the ATO calls that occupancy expenses. But you can claim the running cost for your workspace. So electricity, gas, furniture, stationery, computer, everything else. So for an employee, the answer is no. But the answer is possibly yes. If you run a business at home or from home and your home is your only place of business, if you own your home, there's the risk that you might lose some of your CGT main residence exemption, but the risk might be lower than you might fear. Episode 265 covers this in more detail, so I highly recommend that. But so now, back to what is changing today on the 1st of July, 2021. Number four, early engagement service. Number four, early engagement service. And that is actually for inbound investors to make it easier to invest in Australia. I first thought that is definitely a change that doesn't affect me at all. And then I realized, actually, I'm waiting for this service to start because it also, I assume they also can help you with the whole topic of royalty versus franchise fees and then the withholding tax on that. I hope that this early engagement service can also help with that. Yeah, I think they should probably expand it, not just investors, but anybody who's inbound to Australia um, is going to be working here because you land in the country and, you know, get inquiries all the time for people who've landed in the country and they've still got things overseas. They're starting up businesses here or getting jobs here and they're sort of like, well, how does this all tie together, um, having no real concept of the Australian tax system? So working out, you know, what's worldwide income? When did they become a resident? Is, you know, their income from overseas going to be taxed this year or all those sorts of questions? So I think if they had the ATO had clarity for people around that, it would be very helpful. Number five, beer excise. While neither you nor I have clients in the beer and distillery industry, just reading about it is it is a massive jump. So the um, cap on the 60% rebate used to be capped at $100,000 and is now capped at $350,000. That is a massive jump. And I understand that it is a massive jump to align beer with wine because wine already has this cap of $350,000. Hence, beer was now adjusted to that. I am surprised that it wasn't adjusted earlier, I have to say. I am surprised that the beer industry had to do so for so long with a much lower cap. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, I don't have any clients in the industry, but from what I understand, it's very complex um, to work out, you know, the taxes and the excises and things like that. So I think, you know, anything to level the playing field and make it simpler for a small business, because you think of a small batch brewer, they're probably not going to be all over this sort of stuff. So they'd have to employ accountants who get involved with it, which obviously increases their costs. So I think, yeah, it sounds like a good idea to, to increase that 
that count. Yes, and apparently, I, I, I didn't know, apparently the excise tax is the single largest component of making a liter of beer, which I, I hadn't been aware of. So that is, that is massive. Your syntax, yep. Number six, increase of SG from 9.5 to 10%. Superannuation guarantee increases from 9.5% to 10%. And that is now the start of the road. Actually, now we're already a little bit into the road. So we started with 9%, then it increased to 9.5%. So now this coming year, it increases to 10%. But then it just keeps going. Every year, it will increase by half a percent until it hits 12% in 2026. I have to say 12% feels very high for small business, don't you think? Yeah, I, it's wait and see, I think, whether or not some of this gets repealed over the next couple of years. I'm talking to clients at the moment for the start in July, like saying it goes up half a percent, it doesn't really make terribly much difference to their cash flow. Um, but 12%, I think will start people start feeling the pinch. But it's funny, I was talking to people from larger corporates and a lot of their employment contracts are written that their total remuneration packages, so it includes statutory superannuation so any of these increases come out of their actual pay packet so it's really going to depend on how your contract was written and there has been a lot of noise in the in the media about that employers cheat and make the employees pay for their super but i have two thoughts about that and the first one is if you're on a package you tend not to be on minimum wages if you're on a package you tend to already be a, a better earning employee so maybe you can afford paying for that increase and then the other comment is also i mean i don't know in how many other countries it is i only know of australia where the employer covers the entire superannuation guarantee so for example in new zealand it is the employer pays a larger chunk but the employee also pays some of it and in other countries it's only the employee who pays it who then of course gets a higher salary but in the end it, it's really neither here nor there in the end the employee earns everything and it's just a question of how you define it yeah it doesn't really it comes back to the whole you know economic argument though that people on lower incomes is superannuation actually giving them any benefit in retirement or would they be better off having an extra 10% in their pay packet each week now? To pay off the mortgage. Yeah, and spending the economy and all that sort of stuff because the people who you know generally put more money into super are people who can afford to not have it in their personal life. So, you know, there's that whole philosophical argument about it. But, you know, I agree. Anybody who's on a total remuneration package isn't part of an award generally. I wouldn't think they are anyway. So they can negotiate independently, theoretically, um, what their salary package is. So, you know, whether they lose an extra half a percent in their pay packet, I mean, it's up to them really to talk to their employer. I mean, at the end of the day, if Telstra says, here's your, here's your salary, here's your remuneration, you don't really have much bargaining power. So if you want the job, you'll end up taking it. Number seven, increase of concessional contribution cap to 27,500. Number seven, increase of concessional contribution cap to 27,500. And while it is nice that the um, concessional contribution cap increases to 27,500, I know I will struggle with that, with that odd number. 25 was easier to remember. I can imagine that I will constantly forget this 27 and a half. Yeah, yeah, it's an odd one. It's only people who've got, who've got 27 and a half thousand dollars to put away that it really affects most people would be keeping, you know, their 
their employee contributions at, you know, whatever the mandated amount is, and then the rest of it they generally keep in their own life. Yeah, so you don't have a lot of clients who top it up to 25 or 27 and a half? No, no, uh, my client base is all accumulators, so they're using it to either invest outside of superannuation because they're sceptical of putting it away for the next 20, 25 years um, or they're reinvesting in their business. So they generally don't top up their super. Yes, or or pay off the mortgage. I think before one tops up the super, one should always pay off the mortgage, although that is financial advice, hence I take it back. Yeah, I just tell people the tax implications of if they do make a contribution. Number eight, increase of non-concessional contribution cap to $110,000. Number eight, increase of non-concessional contribution cap to $110,000. So another semi-odd number. Probably doesn't affect that many people either, apart from people close to retirement or so who have sold investment properties or so and are now trying to boost up their super. Yeah, that's that's where I see it applying is most people when they're, you know, in the five or so years before retirement, they want to try and move some assets across. I can't really see a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old tipping in 110 grand out of after-tax cash flow to lock mm. away for 30 years. Number nine, increase of TBC to 1.7 million. Number nine, increase of the uh, transfer balance cap, so the TBC to 1.7 million. What is now confusing before, the transfer balance cap and the total superannuation balance cap were the same amount. They were both 1.6 million. Now you have the TBC at 1.7 million, whereas the TSB caps are still at 1.6 million. So it takes more brain power to remember. Yeah, and this is and why people check out of their superannuation is because it's all too complicated. Like yeah. they want people to invest in it, but then they make these rules that are just way too complex for the ordinary person to get their head around and understand. So, yes. yeah, I mean, what they should have done is just taxed the pension on the way out and just said anything over X amount is therefore assessable income. It doesn't matter how much you have in super if it's spitting out, you know, income above this amount, then that gets taxed. So, But that was Labor's policy and Liberal wanted to come up with their own, so they did. Number 10, individual TBC. Number 10 is interesting. It's, it's a completely new concept, and that is we no longer have a fixed TBC. So when we were talking about the 1.7 million before, we kind of gave the impression that it's another fixed cap as before. But it's actually not a fixed cap. So it is adjusted. Everybody has their own TBC. And that is if on the 1st of July 2021, you are fully in accum accumulation, then your TBC is 1.7 million. If on the 1st of July 2021 you're full in pension, then your TBC is, stays 1.6 million as it was before. And if you're in pension but you haven't reached the 1.6 million yet, so your transfer balance was below 1.6 million, then you take the highest balance and then the gap is indexed accordingly. And that, of course, is very confusing. So I, I thought of an example. And so let's say your balance is the 1.2 million. So you have a gap, 400,000 on the 1st of July, between the 1.6 million and the 1.2 million. So that gap is 25% of the 1.6 million. So that 25% of the increase gets indexed. So And then the other 75% doesn't get indexed. And so your new cap is 
six to five. That's probably just as confusing as anything else I said. Yeah. But maybe the good, the, is, yeah, the, yeah, the good news is, yeah, the good news is. Exactly. The ATO will know it. So we don't actually need to calculate it. The ATO will, will know it. And then hopefully they tell us, you know, hopefully it comes back through a data feed and they tell us before we go over it. So hopefully they don't just keep it for themselves so that they can write nasty letters when if you go over that they tell us beforehand. Let's go through this again, because it was a bit fast. If you are 100% in accumulation, your TBC increases to 1.7 million. So going forward, you can move 1.7 million into pension if you meet the relevant criteria. If you are in pension already and you have maxed out your TBC, then your TBC doesn't change. It stays at 1.6 million, but you have maxed it out. So no more amounts can go into pension mode. And If you are in pension mode, but you haven't maxed out your TBC, then only your unused cap gets adjusted. So let's say your pension balance is 1.2 million. So the unused cap of it is 400,000. So 1.2 plus 400,000 is the old 1.6 million cap. The unused portion of 400,000 is a quarter of the old 1.6 million TBC. So a quarter of your old TBC you haven't used yet. So you get a quarter of this increase now for your new TBC. The increase is $100,000 and a quarter of that is $25,000. So your TBC increases by $25,000 from 1.6 million to 1.625. Number 11. Increase of threshold for spouse and government contribution. The um, spouse and government co-contributions increase and uh, the cap increases from 1.6 million to 1.7 million. You can't do a spouse contribution if the spouse has already super above that cap. So that means your spouse can have 1.69 million in super and still qualify for the spouse contribution if the income is low enough. And the same with the government co-contribution. I can't believe the government pays a co-contribution if, if your super is 1.69 million. I find that difficult to imagine. There is a change from 1.6 to 1.7 million for spouse and government co-contributions, but we're a bit hazy on that one. So not to end on this weak note, to hopefully to finish with, um, with some more fanfare, let's quickly look at things that don't change on the 1st of July. So hopefully you listen to this today. So what is not changing on the 1st of July? The first thing is the instant asset write-off. So you can still write off all purchases of tangible business assets the uh, emphasis is on tangible so not intangible but tangible you can still write off everything through the instant asset write-off as long as your turnover is less than five billion i think it's a good policy um practically i love this policy i love this it, it makes it why? easy yeah. exactly I hate fixed asset register. I find it such a waste of time. And so this is this is easy. You just expense everything. Except for the except for the borrowing costs. When you pay the broker four hundred dollars to get the loan for your chattel mortgage, that has to get written off over the length of the loan or five years. So you write off a hundred and fifty thousand dollar truck, but you can't write off your borrowing costs. Yeah, that's a good point. Borrowing costs don't fall under this instant asset write off because they are not tangible assets. Very good point. But it's still, you know, 
have a lot of trouble explaining this to clients, although well, they've got the wrong idea of it, is that it's some additional tax benefit when really it's just a timing difference rather than getting the tax savings over, you know, four, five, six, ten years, you're getting it all in year one. Um, and most small businesses are buying cars and things like that. So when they do sell it or transfer it in five years' time, they've got no cost base and all of those proceeds are accessible income. So I think it's been sold um, a lot better than um, it actually is for people in a tax sense. I perfectly agree with you. It's no cost, it's no tax saving. It's just a timing difference. You know, save tax now, pay tax later. Yeah, which is fair enough. You know, bird in the hand and all that sort of stuff. You've got the cash now if you're paying tax. So that's the other caveat. It's like if mm. you'll be, it'll be a profitable business to start with to get any benefit out of it. Plus, you also need to actually need the asset um, to generate income. Otherwise, you're just spending money. So it's not, yeah, I don't think it's as great as everybody claims it to be. I agree. Never buy something just to save tax. Only buy this asset if you really need it. Can I ask you something? I think in theory, because my comment just before that I hate fixed asset registers and that it's much easier to just expense it, I think the 100% proper way is actually to put it through the fixed asset register and then to put an instant asset write-off in the fixed asset register. Do you do that? Does anybody do that or does everybody just go the easy I mean of course you can't talk for everybody but am I the only one who just expenses this thing or do you put it through the fixed asset register no I put it through the register because at some stage they're going to get sold and we need to have the cost base there you know if I if we don't put it through the register you don't know they've got it so if they did ever dispose of it like a car you wouldn't have that record so that's I use that as a, a record keeping mechanism of what assets they've got I mean if it's $500 TV, then, you know, probably I'd probably still put it through the register just so we have a record of it, but anything below that I probably don't worry about. I just expense it through the P&L. Te technically, yes, you're supposed to capitalise everything and then, yeah, right. So you 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 run it through the fixed asset register and then, of course, mm. you also then – but the, the good thing about running it through the fixed asset register and then booking it as an instant asset write-off is means you have all the numbers because yeah. the, um, I looked through the changes for the 2021 tax return and that tax return wants to know, I think, exactly how much you – Right. how much you actually yeah. did instantly write off. And, of yep. course, with my lazy method, you don't have that number. I mean, with zero, anything you put to, you know, the asset accounts pre-populate as a draft asset in the fixed asset register. So that's always handy to, you know, prompt you to put it in. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. That's where the draft fixed assets always come from in the register. I was wondering who went through that. I take the view that your depreciation and your P&L should be accounting depreciation and not tax depreciation. So we run separate percentages. So for accounting purposes, we'll use like 10, 10 years straight line. Um, but for tax, we'll write it off instantly. So we have different amounts going through the tax rec just because I, you don't want to show, well, you don't want to show the bank, but also I think it distorts the true underlying performance of the business to say that, oh, we bought this car for 40 grand, so therefore our profit's less. And that's not true in a true business sense. So I, I like to, yeah, have different rates. I'm impressed. I feel like a, I feel like a butcher in comparison to... Yeah, well, I use the, I'll use the accounts as management tools, not just to do the tax return. So I want people to look at it and say, is my business healthy? Is it producing the return that it should be? 
um, and not be distorted too much by what we do in tax world. Number 13, backing business incentive. I'm quite confident when I make a guess that you don't have clients who use the backing business incentive because your turnover needs to be over five billion. Yeah, no, sadly, I don't have any five billion dollar turnover businesses as clients. Yeah. I have to admit that until a few weeks ago, I didn't even know this existed. And then I spoke with somebody about the instant asset write-off and then they started talking about BBI. And I didn't even—I had no idea what BBI was. And then she said, "Yeah, the backing business incentive." And I hadn't—I hadn't never heard of it. Yeah, for the hundred businesses that turn over more than five billion in Australia. Yes, exactly. And then proud number fourteen extension of the fifty percent reduced minimum pension payment. I think that affects a lot of people because it means you you can take out the money out of super but you don't have to if you want to you can leave it in super and you only have to withdraw half of what you usually would have to withdraw so let's say if you are 65 instead of 5% you only need to withdraw 2.5% each year from your pension accounts yeah correct again i think this what it favors people who don't need the money so yeah, those who accumulated more assets will have more income outside so anybody who needs you know, the pension to live off will just draw whatever they need to live off, whether that's 5% or two and a half or, you know, you know what I mean? Um, they're going to draw what they need to draw to pay the bills. Whereas anybody who has discretion, yeah, it works great for them to keep money in super, but it's not really helping the, the lower income people. You know, anybody with a self-managed super fund probably doesn't, well, it's pretty broad net the cast there, but um, they've usually accumulated a fair bit of assets to have that. So, yeah, this wouldn't really affect them too much, but Everybody else, yeah, I'm not sure how much. I'm not sure what purpose it serves for the vast majority of taxpayers. It sort of caters more to people who have discretion on how much they want to draw down. No big changes. A little bit here and there. STP, some percentages change, company tax rate, minimum pension withdrawals some caps change but all up i don't think it's any fundamental changes do you agree i agree yeah yeah which is good i don't think we could handle any fundamental changes at this point in time i think we're all pretty drained out yeah from my perspective i always want people to focus on not how much they spend on tax but what they do with the rest of their money so if the tax rates 25 or 26 that doesn't really matter as what you do with the other 74 or other 75 percent of the profit that really matters so that's what i'd like people to focus more on. Welcome back. So this was a short overview of what changed today on the 1st of July 2021. Happy new financial year. And if you are in Sydney like me, I hope the lockdown treats you kindly. In the next episode, episode 300, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will talk about PSI versus PSB. So personal services income versus a personal services business. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.